Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin, I want to do a bit of a thought exercise. I want you to imagine waking one morning. Now, this is not a morning like Christmas where you are ready to run down the stairs or run into the living room to tear apart the wrapping paper to find out all the gifts you have received. That's a different sermon. This is a, is a morning that is much more somber and serious because this is a morning as your mind begins to clear and to focus, you're aware of some regrettable events that you took part in the day before. And those events do not bring a sense of joy, but they bring a sense of shame. Maybe you remember a bout of anger. Your fist punched physical holes in walls, or your words punched figurative holes in hearts. You were harsh, and you know your actions hurt and harmed others. Or maybe you remember something you posted on social media. It was about elevating self, a little self-absorbed. It was about you emphasizing your rights and your pleasure. Maybe you, you, you posted that in a way you didn't want particular individuals to see because of how they would perceive it. Or maybe as you scrolled through your feed, you became bitter and angry as you learned about the circumstances of others. Such a moment reminded you of pride and arrogance and envy. They are still very present in your heart. Or maybe you remember a moment you let down your guard and your eyes engaged in activity, pursuing images where others were wearing little to no clothes. Or you consumed forms of entertainment you know should be off limits. Or maybe you remember a moment you had an invitation to speak words of truth. An opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Or an opportunity to encourage or challenge a brother or sister in Christ but you were too afraid to step out, too fearful of what others might think. So instead of stepping into such a moment, you shrunk back. So we all struggle with some specific sins. How do you respond when you become aware of those sins you are struggling with? when you are, uh, uh, committed that sin again? In what ways do you struggle when you are confronted with your sin? So some of us tend towards despair. 
There is so much guilt and shame associated with your sin. Being confronted with sin, your sin, is a cause for distrusting the credibility of your Christian faith. Or or perhaps even doubting Christianity altogether. Sure, you know that God forgives. You know intellectually that is true. But for you, you should have known better. You've been a Christian for how many years? How long have you been aware of and struggling with this sin? You, you are a poor excuse for a believer in Christ. Others of you, rather than despair, you tend to deflect. You don't like to talk about the seriousness of specific sins. You can admit you struggle with sin generally. But, but, but to have a hard time discussing particular aspects of the specific sins you struggle with. And when you, when you do become confronted with specific sins, you're quick to remind others, oh, Jesus died for my sin. It's not a big deal. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't die for your sin, but, but you tend to use the cross or the good news of the gospel to dismiss the seriousness and significance of sin in your life. Whether your heart turns towards despair or tends to deflect, in this moment, rather than turning to the Lord, many determine, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to act selfishly. I'm never going to take in those substances. I'm never going to set my tongue or my eyes in ways that lead to sin. And so rather than seek Jesus, you actually avoid Jesus. Rather than identifying as someone who needs to be forgiven, you want to say you are someone who doesn't need such weak things. Your desire not to sin isn't a desire to experience Christ and glorify Christ but a desire to glorify self. So if you were with us last week, you know as a church we transitioned into the season of Advent. A period of time in the church calendar, Christians reflect on the first coming of Christ and look forward to the second coming of Christ. We're spending four Sundays contemplating and reflecting on what it means to be people who wait. Last week, we talked about how we've become a culture that has been formed to not wait. Next day shipping, one-click ordering, groceries delivered directly to our door, principles of taking in whatever we want, whenever we want, are encouraged. I mean, some of you have jobs. You are supposed to fix things right away, not six months from now and certainly not years in the distant future. Principles of fasting, self-discipline, self-control, refraining with our bodies and with our eyes and with our mouths, they are rejected. But Scripture tells us we are a people who wait. So when it comes to struggle with sin... We know God has forgiven sinners. We know sin and Satan has been defeated. And yet, 
Those mornings and those moments that I described earlier, they remind us that sin still has a sort of presence and power in our lives. So the the title of the sermon this morning is Waiting for Sin to End. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up to the passage read earlier, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. That passage is providing a pivotal perspective of a period of time Christians wait. In verse 11, it describes God's people have experienced something that's in the past. They have experienced the grace of God appearing. And in verse 13, it describes something we are waiting to experience, a second appearing of Christ when he returns in glory. God's people today live between those two appearings. And as we wait, it's not that we're doing nothing, that we're waiting around in a sort of powerless way, grumbling and complaining, Jesus, why haven't you come back? Instead, we are being transformed. We are being changed. In describing this period, the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, wants to strip sin of power as we wait. So this text will offer encouragement to a people like us who are waiting for sin to end. So we'll look at three encouragements along those lines. The first, as we are waiting, we are remembering our past salvation. We are looking back and rejoicing at our past. So the book of Titus, it was written to a spiritual leader who lived among a people that experienced ongoing struggles with sin. In Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the passage that preceded what was read this morning, the author gives instructions to a variety of groups of people on how to live. Older men are to be sober-minded. Older women are to teach what is good. Young women are to love their husbands and their children. Younger men are to be self-controlled. Leaders like Titus are to be a model of good works. The people Titus was ministering to lived in a place called Crete. And they were actually known throughout the world to be self-indulgent. They had a reputation for not having self-control when it came to what they ate, what and how much they drank, what they took in with their eyes, how they used their tongues to hurt and harm others, and what they did with their bodies. They were an instant gratification type of people. In verses 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul lays out a vision of what it means to reject sin that is common to the broader culture and all too common within the church. Because people in the church, they struggle with sin too. So after laying out that vision, Paul moves on to what encourages and strengthens God's people to experience such a life. In verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul addressed a diverse group of people. And he's emphasizing Christ. Christ's coming, Christ appearing, it resulted in salvation for all types of people. Older men, 
Older women, younger men, younger women, slaves, leaders, the grace that has appeared. Jesus' first coming, it has made possible salvation for all types of people. So part of the heart of waiting for sin to end, God's people remember and reflect and rejoice at what Christ has done for sinners like you and I. Many find it difficult to rejoice as we look back. Ongoing struggles with sin, they make us feel defeated. We do not experience the joy of repentance. We do not experience the peace of Christ. We do not experience freedom from condemnation, the Bible describes. Instead, we despair as we experience significant shame and guilt. Listen to Pastor Ray Orland. Sometimes we find it hard to believe good news, don't we? The accusing voice within us whispers, Sure, go ahead and believe the gospel, up to a point. But what about that sin you committed? That betrayal, that hypocrisy, when you were at your worst? No, God is too disgusted with those sins. Maybe God will bless other people with peace and joy because they haven't acted out the way you have, but you've sinned too far. Our merciless consciences drag us back into anxiety, shame, and despair. Our past experience with some specific sin, which may have been months ago or just moments ago, those experiences define how we view our past. Those are the moments that have the most power in our lives. As you consider your past, do you primarily reflect on the power of what God has done for you or the power of your past sin? Paul is saying, as we wait for sin to end, sin has been stripped of its power because we have been forgiven. We don't need to live in shame or live in guilt. We put to death a question like, could God forgive a sinner like me? Because we know when the grace of God first appeared, it brought salvation to all types of people, even the chief of sinners. And so that sin you believe you can't be forgiven, that sin you tend to believe that God can't pass over, that sin you believe you should have known better as you wait, you know God has forgiven far worse. Now, it is not that in rejecting despair, we deny the seriousness of sin, but we do deny being defined by our past experiences with sin because we are no longer defined by our works. We are defined by his works. Listen to Paul a few verses later in Titus chapter three. But when the kindness of, our, of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Again, that's the first, first coming. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. That first appearing of Jesus, it was an act of grace. It was an appearing of grace. Before Jesus came, the, the people of God, to have their sins forgiven, they needed to participate in an ongoing sacrifice. 
That, that sacrifice reflected the seriousness of their sin. That sacrifice pointed to the cost of God forgiving sin. After the first coming of Christ, as God's people reflect on the seriousness of our sin, as we reflect on that, we do not participate in a sacrifice because we rejoice in a sacrifice that has been made. We remember what God has done for us. We recount how the cost of forgiving sin, it has been paid. So as we are waiting for sin to end, we are remembering and rejoicing our past salvation. That's the first encouragement Paul offers. The second, as we wait, we are experiencing a reorienting of our current desires. See, we look back at what was accomplished on our behalf. We, we experience that in the present and we see what was accomplished in the past. It provides fuel to something significant in the present, the reorienting of our desires. One of the things Christians have a difficult time being honest about is that when we engage in sin, it is a stepping into of what our hearts want. When we escape, when we feed an addiction, when we act out in anger, when we avoid hard conversations, those decisions reflect something we want. Now, I often say people who struggle with unwanted behavior, the pursuit of pornography, stepping into jealousy or envy or being arrogant and prideful, they don't wake up wanting to do those things. But there is something attractive about those activities, something they provide to the heart and the mind and the soul in the moment that is desirable. Listen to Counselor Ed Welch. A basic though neglected fact about sin is that it is enjoyable to the undisciplined heart, at least initially. We sin because we are inclined to sin. We sin because we like to sin. This is, of course, self-evident. Why else would we compulsively do things that can be so destructive to ourselves and others? But you don't hear many people making the simple admission, the problem is that I enjoy it. Have you ever heard a personal story where someone said that he sinned because he liked it? Really? The truth, however, is that no matter how tragic the consequences of the sin, there is some pleasure in it. Why is it important for you to recognize you desire to sin? Because what Paul says in verse 12, as we live between the first appearing, waiting for a second appearing, grace is instructing us. That means training us or teaching us Grace is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. That's what grace does to us while we wait for sin to end. Paul is not giving another instruction here. He's not saying don't sin. He's not saying reject worldly lusts and pursue righteousness. What he's doing, he's describing something that happens to God's people as we are waiting for sin to end. In doing so, he is pointing out how understanding grace, it renovates and reorients our desires. That, that word reorient, 
Orientation is a matter of what we are pointed away from and what we are pointed towards. God's people grow to be oriented away from worldly desires and oriented towards otherworldly affections. The language used here, we deny godlessness and worldly lusts. That's what we're oriented away from. Godlessness is a lack of reverence towards God, living as though God does not exist. Worldly desires are living as though we belong to the world, living like everyone else. We are growing to be oriented away from those desires and growing towards being oriented to living in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. That's the otherworldly affections we are growing to desire. When we are reorienting, we live sensibly. Our worldly desires do not rule us, and we function with, with sound mind, sober judgment, and we are temperate. You know that grace is at work as you wait for sin to end when your desires are changing. When you are no longer seeking to serve yourself and instead you are seeking to serve your Savior. I experience this in many of you in how you relate to others. You are less and less self-focused and more and more others-focused. You are less and less self-focused in how you use your time. Rather than simply escaping and withdrawing, you long to be present with the Lord and to read his word and to minister to others and and to use your hands and your heads and your hearts to, to serve the Lord with those gifts that he has given you. You grieve your sin. Now, Paul is not saying desire in and of itself is bad. But our desires can be oriented in the wrong direction. So John Piper has said, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. This passage is describing how as we wait for sin to end, grace is reorienting our desires. That means, this means... Conviction and guilt about the seriousness of our sin, that's a good thing. Conviction and, and about the seriousness of sin, that's not to be deflected. Those are gifts from God. They point to a reality, the reorienting of our desires. We are a work in progress. We are not yet finished. We need to learn. We need to find, as Piper says, superior satisfaction in God. We need the grace of Christ's appearing to teach us and to train us more to deny worldly desires and to pursue other worldly affections, living in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. A person who is trained by grace is not perfect, they're being trained. They are being reoriented. And so desires for power, desires for affirmation, desires for personal pleasure, they grow to have less power in our lives. As we are reoriented differently, we deny godlessness and worldly lusts. There are things we say no to. 
And instead, we desire more and more to be oriented to, to point to the grace of a selfless Savior, a Savior who will return in glory. So we pursue living in a sensible, righteous, and godly way to point to him. As we are confronted with the seriousness of our sin, we want the grace of God to be more attractive to us. So we do not dismiss and deflect and defend the seriousness of our sin. We confess it because we know it has been defeated, because we know it has been stripped of its power to condemn us. We do not struggle to share it with others. We do not struggle to to share with others how sometimes sin is gaining an upper hand. We ask for help. We look to receive wise counsel from others. We gain a vision for what it would look like to say no to, to sin, and we intend to say no to sin. We pursue holiness and righteousness. We enter into worship regularly with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we put in place measures and means to defeat sin in our lives. Grace encourages us to live differently as we are waiting for sin to end. So, as we're waiting for sin to end, we are remembering our past salvation and we are experiencing a reorienting of our current desires. But not only that, we are reforming our hope for the future. See, Paul describes the disposition of waiting in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is sharing good news here. But but I think there is a reality that this is not always good news to everyone. Okay, let me share a story. Back in 2017, according to ABC News, there was this amateur surfer named Charlie Fry and he, he and three of his doctor friends, they were having a good time together in the ocean north of Sydney, Australia, when all of a sudden he turned and he saw a shark coming out of the water. This is what Charlie said. I feel like there was a hand grabbing me, shaking me. I feel like I was going to be eaten alive, like I generally thought I was going to die, like I was eaten by a shark. So what did Charlie do? I just punched it in the face. And the shark swam away. I want to be Charlie. You want to be Charlie. Now, not being chased by an enemy like a shark, but defeating an enemy like a shark. Charlie punched it, and he walked away in glory. I want that glory. I want to be the one to punch the shark in the face. I think I probably could, except I can't swim. In a cultural moment that you are told you can be anything you want to be, in a cultural moment you are told you should be able to do anything you want to do, you and I, we want the glory. We want to be the one who defeats sin and Satan, not the one who is rescued from being defeated. That's so weak. Such a disposition dismisses our need for grace. We don't want to be needy. We don't recognize how desperate our condition is. 
And in embracing such a disposition, we gain a false view of what our hope is in. Meaning, as we are waiting for sin to end, is our hope some state of sinless perfection that we can achieve, or is our hope in the one who will free us to a state of sinless perfection? Some of you may may be familiar with faith traditions that teach because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, you and I can achieve a state where we no longer sin. Like I no longer lie to others. I no longer lust or experience jealousy or envy or, or greed. I always act in love towards others. I never get angry. It's a status of earthly, sinless perfection. And it's not biblical. But some of you, that's the future that you are waiting and longing for. A worldly life without sin. You don't want to commune with Jesus. You want to be able to avoid Jesus. You and I on this earth, we will still sin. Sins of anger, sins of lust, sins of jealousy and bitterness. Our desires are reorienting, but our hope is not in being sinless. Our hope is a savior who will come in glory. When you are waiting for an earthly status of sinless perfection, when you believe you can achieve this, future sin and doubts and flaws and failures, they will destroy you. You will defend when others speak to you about concerns they have with your behavior and your character. You will deny particular motivations. You want to be sinless because you don't want to be weak. You want the consequences of your sin to be gone, but you don't want the grace of Christ and the glory of Christ. Christians are not longing for a day this side of the new heavens and new earth that we will not struggle with doubt and failures and flaws. Christians are waiting for a day when the one who never sinned will return, when he will come in glory and completely defeat the power of the evil one. This means as we experience day-to-day struggles with future sin, Our hope, what we wait for, is not something that you and I can achieve. It is something only that Christ will achieve for us. See, maybe some of you will come to a point that you do not struggle with particular sins that cause you shame. Abusing particular substances. Unwanted sexual sin. having bouts of anger, not, getting, not, not losing self-control. When that happens, if you are relying on self, in its place could be something more sinister. A, a sin that is socially acceptable, that is encouraged. Maybe an addiction to work. Maybe an unhealthy dependence on exercise maybe storing away money or possessions for the future. If you're familiar with recovery language associated with Alcoholics Anonymous, you may recognize the term dry drunk. This describes someone who is not drinking alcohol, but is still enslaved to underlying issues that drove them to drink in the first place. Performance, fear of the opinions of others, pain in 
past relationships, freedom from particular sin patterns may not be freedom at all. If it is freedom that keeps us enslaved to particular behaviors and actions. Paul says in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Our hope for how we relate to sin in the future, it is not defined by a particular plan. It is defined by a person. And so rather than giving us a plan to follow, Scripture is giving us a person to know. Christ is our hope. Christ is the one that we long to commune with. Jesus being the redeemer, the rescuer, the one who gets the glory, it is so much greater than anything you and I could ever do. The language here, cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. It it describes communion we are invited into with God. And it's actually a, a reference to the book of Exodus. After the Israelites are delivered from Egypt, after they cross the sea, as they approach God at Mount Sinai, he says this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. Christ has cleansed us, rescued us, gave himself that we would be his special people. This language, it connects to liberation. Jesus has delivered God's people from a form of slavery. He has purified us. He has set us free. The legalist, the person that is bound to perform to performing particular behaviors, to not sinning, that person is still in prison. What that person does is what keeps them in prison or sets them free. For the Christian, it is Jesus' first appearing and second appearing that ultimately sets his people free. Liberation is not something we earn. We have been saved into a relationship where sin no longer separates. That's the grace of Christ's first coming. He has rescued us. And when Christ returns in glory, the union we have begun to experience, it will be experienced in its fullness. Our hope for the future, what God's people look forward to, the emphasis isn't on you. It's what Jesus will do to you and for you. You will be transformed. Your hope is a savior who will transform you, who will make you completely new. He will come. Come, Lord Jesus. And in expectation of him him coming, we look forward to that day and we prepare for that day. As we conclude, as you consider how the Apostle Paul is encouraging God's people as they are waiting for sin to end, what might you need to consider and surrender? Do you tend towards despair? rather than rejoicing and remembering your past salvation? Do do you tend to dismiss your struggles with sin rather than recognize, hey, you're in a process of being trained by grace to experience a reorienting of your desires? 
Do you, do you tend to look to achieve a status of sinless perfection so you can avoid Christ? What are you ultimately looking forward to and waiting for? Something to glorify self or something to glorify Christ? For those who are in Christ, the coming of Jesus a second time, this appearing of glory, it will be wonderful. But for those who are not in Christ, for those who have rejected him, the glory of God, the glory of this second appearing, it should be a threat. So as you're with us this morning, perhaps you do not believe that your sin is all that serious. You do not grieve your sin. You do not see how your sin produces hurt and harm. Or perhaps you see the seriousness of your sin, but you do not want to be weak. You want to be able to put trust in self because you struggle to trust someone else. So trusting in a Savior, Jesus Christ, is a difficult thing to do. Maybe the Lord is inviting you to surrender your sin this morning. Or maybe the Lord is inviting you to surrender trusting in self. Christ coming in glory is good news for those who have received the grace of his first appearing. Will you receive the grace of that first appearing even today? Will you receive it? First City Church, may, be, may we be a people who look backward and rejoice and who look forward and long for Christ to come in glory, to wash us clean, that we may experience completely what it means to be a people for his own possession. May the way we look back and the way we look forward, may it transform our desires and the way we live today. Let's pray.